0: On air,
1: online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. On ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania, this is The Country Hour with Lucy Cooper.
2: Good afternoon. Happy Tuesday. Coming up on today's show, grapevines are beautiful and green at the moment, and as we get closer to harvest... So how is the season looking?
3: I think we'll be at, at least an average yield. So um, what it means when it's warm and dry is that, you know, keeps the disease pressure down, the vines do well, they grow quite vigorously.
2: And we head to the glitz and glamour of the Magic Millions horse sale kicking off today on the Gold Coast.
4: You know, we've got buyers from um, all over the world, whether it be America, um, you know, Europe, the UK, all over Asia, Japan, China, Hong Kong, um, New Zealand, uh, a little bit of interest from the Middle East, and obviously a huge domestic market.
2: First up, though, salmon farming is relatively new to Storm Bay in the state's southeast, but already a new environmental monitoring program is revealing exactly how the local marine environment is responding to the industry. The decision to greenlight Storm Bay for salmon aquaculture was met with concern over whether the spread of major diseases could be prevented. Associate Professor Jeff Ross from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies said the program is serving as an early warning system.
5: Storm Bay was identified as a priority area for uh, expansion of the salmon aquaculture in Tasmania due to its its high energy environment, which allows for nutrient dispersion and more diffuse effects. You know than than areas with lower lower water movement, but um, but. It's it's a new place to farm, and so I guess our task was to develop an environmental monitoring program that that was really sensitive and had the ability to detect um, to detect change as the industry developed. So we wanted to make sure that we had the science right um, before the industry developed, and we could make sure that there was you know sort of evidence based decision making.
2: So, an environmental monitoring program, yeah. what exactly were those factors that you guys were looking at?
5: so it means that it means that we go out we need to understand what important habitats are out there. So, when I mean habitats, I mean things like rocky reefs where people catch and collect abalone and crayfish and recreationally dive to the big, vast areas of soft sediment, so that that sort of there's nothing to areas of seagrass the water column. So they're all important habitats that have really interesting and important communities and species. And so we essentially want to go out there and measure them and understand what's there and develop a program so we can go out and monitor and observe and make sure there's no change to the health of those systems.
2: What were those outcomes of the program? What are those key takeaways for you guys?
5: Look, there were two parts of it. So there was that was one key part was making sure that we recommended a monitoring program that was fit for purpose so it actually achieves what the government needs to achieve. So it can provide that early warning system. Um, and the other part of it was to actually assess, given that the industry is developing out there, what effect they might be having in terms of the environment. So I guess in terms of what we found, we found that the storm bay is in a really um, healthy state, um, that, you know, that there are no clear signs or evidence of adverse effects of of salmon aquaculture in the system. in the local vicinity of the, of the leases, we see some of the expected impacts that we would, um, in and around the cages. And, um, and you know, we've made some modifications for Storm Bay because the animals that live in Storm Bay are a little bit different to other systems. And we see the organic enrichment. It sort of has a bigger spread around the pens, but sort of a less, um, less acute, so it's a more even spread. So some of the animals that we use to detect impacts are a little bit different in Storm Bay. So we've used that to help inform the EPA so they can modify their environmental licence conditions. So they're a bit more fit for purpose for Storm Bay.
2: And so salmon farming hasn't actually been in Storm Bay for a very long time, like we're talking a number of years compared to a number of decades so were the findings that there hasn't been an overall negative impact from salmon farming on the surrounding marine life actually expected given it hasn't been there for that long?
5: Yeah look Look. look that's certainly what we would hope and that, that was a whole, whole idea was that the expansion of the industry in the initial stages would be guided by science. So there were two parts of the science that was the science that IMAS were doing in terms of measuring the environment and what CSIRO have been doing in terms of having models that can predict how the system might respond in the future. So yes, so we've been monitoring in the early stage of, the, of expansion, but they have, you know, they have reached um, you know, reasonably significant levels in the in the early stages. So yes, you might expect and hope, and certainly that's what we w- we would hope and expect, that there would be minimal impact. So it's quite pleasing um, to confirm that. But the important thing moving forward is that you know the system's not static nor is the industry. So it's important that our monitoring program continues which it does under the environmental licenses and we've provided a whole lot of guidelines about health can be continually assessed because we're not saying just because there are no impacts there that it never will be. This is about establishing a monitoring program that can provide you know the early um, early detection and, and, and any signs of enrichment going forward. So So the monitoring is an ongoing process.
2: And is this program essentially a lesson of the past knowing that you must start you know, looking at that environmental impact, really from day dot.
5: Oh, look, absolutely. I, I think that you know that it'd be foolish to think that we got everything that that everything was right from the start. And I think you know, Storm Bay really is the culmination of a lot of a lot of learnings about making sure that we get really well established. Um, baseline and environmental conditions. I think, you know, the other thing is that we've, you know, that the array of habitats. So we've, I guess, applied a lot of learnings that, that have been made in, in other systems. So, um, you know, in, in somewhere like Storm Bay, that if the inshore reefs, there's concerns about them in the future, we have got a really, really, really established baseline of what they looked like over the last few years. So it'll be, it'll be a much, um, have a much been in a much stronger position moving forward to um, to look at change.
2: Associate Professor Jeff Ross from the University of Tasmania's Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies. I want to know what you think of this text in 936. That's zero four three eight nine double two nine three six. Sticking with aquaculture now, and the commercial scallop season has wrapped up with fishermen catching around 3,500 tonnes across state and Commonwealth waters. I know many listeners will have reaped these scallop rewards this summer, whether cooked fresh, battered, maybe in a classic curried pie. And according to industry, scallop beds here were well stocked, but the size of the shellfish were noticeably smaller this year. Larissa Smith caught up with fisherman John Hammond to find out why.
6: Well, I don't know how to explain it. Actually, I've never in my lifetime seen anything like it as far as numbers as the biblical numbers of scallops out there, and has been for several years. But the quality um, is just slowly, surely getting less and less. Um, you know, a normal run of scallops—Bass Strait, King Island, Flinders Island—normally um, about um, between 65 and 75, 80 to the kilo. We've flat out getting the scallop under 100 of the kilo this year. Still nice fish, good-looking fish, present good, wrap-up, good, beautiful beautiful eating, but for some reason, we're not getting any size in the fish anymore. um, And the numbers are just phenomenal. Uh, Unbelievable quantity of fish coming up. We can drop a dredge in, tow it for five minutes and pull up a tonne of shell, which is unheard of. Is it the weather? No, I don't think... I, I honestly think it's just too many. We, see, we used to have um, 200 boats fishing bass straight. There's six left. We, we can't put a dendam anymore. And when, when that numbers are there now, when they spawn, we've got biblical numbers to start with, and the biblical numbers in the turn, and the millions of biblical numbers, so it's have just got all these numbers, and the whole thing's just gone. It's crazy. It's crazy. The numbers are crazy.
7: So just explain to me what happens on the, the sea floor." Are they competing for food? Is it space? What, what determines how fat scallops well, can grow?
6: The, the scallop spawn lands on the, on the ocean floor and starts growing. And In a short space of time, it's about as finger, big as your fingernail, and there's multi-millions of them there. So in 12 months, it's um, nearly as big as your hand. So they're still competing for the same food in that area there, and it's stacked on top of one another. It's just, I honestly don't know. I don't know if anyone can say with any confidence exactly what the problem is with the quality but the numbers are just ridiculous we've got boats going out there come back with 30 tonne, only gone 10 hours it's just crazy crazy stuff
7: and if you aren't eating into that population that's still quite sizable are you expecting that issue around size to continue into the following season
6: we're just hoping that the ongoing spatfalls falls are on in areas that are producing better fish we get more flow more food chain more f- more food. Um, the fish at Babel have been fine, and supposedly with the global warming stuff that the the water from the is basically warmer. But the fish over there just got bigger and bigger and bigger.
7: So when did everyone fill their quotas? Did you did you pull up a lot earlier?
6: We pulled up probably. Um, we're knocked off now. We normally fish through a bit closer to Christmas. No, we we went through most of the year, but it's it's sort of a, the whole thing spills over. Whether the processing sector is slow. It's hard for the girls because the fish are small, so we've got to pay them more money to get them to stay there, and and it all just compounds everywhere you look. There's an issue with the whole bloody thing. And it's it's a shame actually because they're beautiful eating fish. They're small. They're ideal for all sorts of things, but the size thing seems to be predominant about everything really. It's like your craze. You buy craze for fifty bucks for under under a kilo, eight hundred grams, 80 dollars up to one point five, and then the ninety five to hundred up to two kilo and over two kilo, there could be $120 a kilo. Um, the size thing, a lot of it's a marketing ploy, I don't understand it probably, but... Um...
7: Well, it's probably not as appealing to the retailers, the restaurants, uh, when the size is diminished in terms of making a dish look specky.
6: You can't buy a kilo of scallops and you've got a kilo of scallops. Then you're big or small, you still got a kilo. If one's not big enough, you eat two. If you're doing kebabs, you put, put six on each put 12. And the pubs love them. Wrap a bit of batter around them, instead of putting four or five scallops on them, You got a dozen. I think that, you know the tourists come, and think, geez, a little different for a skull, scallops, you know. And rightly so too, can they're beautiful. They're beautiful eating. Well, I think it's something we're just going to have to grin and bear and put up with for quite a while. But I can't say next year should be, if all things were normal, next year should be better quality, a little bit better up around the uh, eighty odd, ninety to kilo, which would be would be a whole lot better and better for the girls, better for everyone, a lot less work all round.
7: Prices this
6: year? Yeah, prices have been quite good. We've been getting, um, twenty bucks back to the boat a lot of time. The girls have been getting seven and eight dollars a kilo for the for the fact that they're small and they're slow and you know they've got to make some money. The buying price at the moment, yeah, there's a lot of add-ons and travelling and carrying and There's a lot of work in Scotland, a lot of work. They're costing you basically thirty bucks just for the for the splitter and, and the um and, and the feedbacks the boat. Two or three bucks transport, that's about your packaging, your freight and your freezing works and Transport to market, all the rest of it. So I think the basic price about 50 bucks a kilo for scallops, $25 for half a kilo. But when you, buy, when you buy your kilo of scallops, you've got 100 pieces. So if you sit 10 people down, you just, you just go and put, pay 50 bucks for a kilo of scallops, or feed 10 people, so you can have 10 scallops each. That, that is a cheap seafood. It is actually is the cheapest seafood that you can buy scallops are. If you've got 100% consumable, there's no waste, there's no bones... Safe for kids to eat, safe for everyone to eat. To my way of thinking, they are the best, best value for money fishing the sea, scallops are.
2: John Hammond is the president of the Tasmanian Scallop Fishermen's Association.
8: Ready to hit the road less travelled? Back Roads is back out adventuring. From Tassie's Tasman Peninsula to East Arnhem Land in the Territory and everywhere in between. Join me, Heather Hewitt, and my guest explorers now on Tuesday nights at 8, visiting the small towns and communities that make Australia so special.
1: All new Backroads returns tonight on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iview. The Country Hour with Lucy Cooper on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
2: you've taken a drive through any one of our many wine-growing regions, you'll have noticed the vines are all very green lately. That's because harvest is coming up in March and April this year. So how are the grapes faring? Has it been good enough conditions for creating our favourite local wines? I spoke with Matt Dumbabin of Bengal Vineyard in Darnalli earlier to find out how everything's been travelling for him and his operation.
3: It's been really good grape growing conditions this spring and, and early summer. So grapes in Tasmania, you know, especially where we are in southern Tasmania, like it warm and dry, and it's certainly been a, a warm and dry season, especially compared to the last few years that we've had.
2: So how does that translate to the grapes on the vines themselves? Are you looking at an a decent yield, an average yield? Where are you at?
3: I think we'll be at least an average yield. So, um, what it means when it's warm and dry is that, you know, keeps the disease pressure down. The vines do well, they grow quite vigorously, uh, and fruit set is more reliable when the conditions are, are settled and warm. And coming off the back of some cool wet years, it takes a couple of years for the vines to develop some really fruitful buds. Um, so, we won't get a bumper year this year. But we're looking at probably about an average yield, which we'll take.
2: And taking your mind back to previous Tasmanian summers, have they been this hot and dry?
3: Oh, it comes and goes. So it hasn't been remarkably hot and dry. I mean, I can remember hotter and drier ones uh, for sure. The start at the start of spring, it was looking very, very dry um, just in this year. But just in the last couple of months, you know, we've had a, a little bit of rainfall, which has uh, helped a little bit, but um, it's certainly one of the warmer seasons. It's been, definitely been warmer than average, but not um, not the, the hottest by any means.
2: So how is the climate this summer going to overall affect the ultimate end product being the wine?
3: Uh, you know, obviously the season has a big effect on on the style of the type of fruit that we get and, and the wine that we make. Um, this year, um, being warm, warm, we'll probably be picking a little bit earlier than average, um, and just with a sort of an average crop. So things should be very ripe. So we're expecting some, you know, really delicious flavours, um, quite intense, a good intensity of fruit. It, a vintage 2024 uh, should be a good one
2: you've got wine grapes another facet of your farm is sheep now whilst the grapes might might like it a little bit warmer and drier does that translate across to your sheep Uh, how are they going at the moment
3: uh well the sheep are going okay in terms of the sheep themselves but certainly the season is challenging so uh, as they say, you can't you can't uh, win them all. So whilst it's a, a good year for growing wine grapes, it's been a, definitely a challenging year for livestock. Not a very big spring, so tight on, on feed this year. Also, everyone probably realises, you know, the livestock markets have been really tough in the last six months as well.
2: How does it go managing a business where you've got wine grapes and sheep? I mean, they have such different... Requirements. How have you found that balance after so many years of doing it?
3: Well, I mean, lamb and and pinot go together perfectly. So you know, they, there are some uh, good uh, relationships between the two. But it's, we're a diverse farm, so we're used to managing different enterprises. It's just a matter of um, focusing on different enterprises at the at different times, and they they go uh, hand in hand. It works out quite well.
2: And it, it seemingly, I mean, being out on Tassie roads, it's extremely busy with tourists at the moment. Is that what you're seeing in terms of people coming into the cellar door?
3: Yeah, this time of year is obviously our, our busiest season, so we always look forward to the sort of post-Christmas for a couple of months, a lot of people travelling around and enjoying, you know, the, the sort of things we're offering, like you know, great Tassie wine and, and great food. So it's wonderful to see so many people around
2: and maybe the chance to see a wombat out on your
3: farm as well we do have a lot of wombats here they're they're pretty nocturnal so you know visitors here here in the daytime uh, it's unlikely that they'll they'll see a wombat but um, they can know that we're home to a lot of wombats and um, they're they're doing their bit to support us to look after the wombats
2: matt dunbadman of bangor vineyard in denali and speaking of vineyards would you buy a bottle of wine if it wasn't in a bottle? A UniSA researcher has looked into what consumers think about alternative options like casked wine and aluminium cans. Sophie Holder spoke to lead researcher Jacob Mercedes and asked him about the benefits of other options.
9: Other than the fact that, you know, they're really carbon efficient, they save a lot of people or they save a lot of CO2 in terms of how they're produced and manufactured and shipped. Um, They've also just got a lot more consumer-facing benefits. So, like, if we're talking about bag and box or, like, cartons or cans, a lot easier to store, a lot easier to travel with. If we're looking at cars, um, once you open it, your wine stays fresh for a lot longer than it would after if you had just left it in an open bottle, even if you shut the lid. So they're a lot more convenient, a lot more ergonomic and they're a lot more sustainable, especially when we're talking about removing CO2 from the winemaking process.
7: So when it did come to these sorts of packaging, what sort of things influenced um, consumers as to what they were purchasing?
9: Yeah, so we looked at a few factors. So realistically, when people go to buy a wine, there's heaps and heaps of different factors that influence their choice. But we were looking at the types of brands, the price, the packaging format. And then we were also looking at like specific messaging attributes, so what the message focuses on and how we frame the message, how that will influence how people um, make their packaging choices. What we found was that the formats, the packages that people were more familiar with were the ones they were more likely to choose. And package format had an outsized influence on what people chose, so... Unfortunately, currently that means that glass dominates, right? It's been around for centuries. People know that is the main packaging format for wine. So that's the one they choose most in response. Then basically, as you move by familiarity, um, that's the package format people choose. So from glass bottles, they'll go to, you know, cask wine, bag in box, to bottles that look like glass bottles, so on and so forth. I think the interesting thing to consider, though, another thing we found is that a lot of these packages are also viewed through the context of like uh, the consumption situation, right? So we were looking at just having um, a drink at home with a couple of friends, but if we were testing, you know, having a drink outside or on a picnic, we would expect these preferences to change. You know, cans might become more favoured because they're specifically linked to another consumption situation. What we also found was that people were more receptive to these packages at low to mid-price ranges, and they were more receptive to them when they were coming from brands with a bit more reputation that were a lot more well-known as opposed to small, newer, or completely unfamiliar wineries. So, interesting stuff. I guess the the implication is that, like, because of this reputation that these packages have, um, Australians aren't ready to start, you know, buying a Penfold's Grange, in, let's say, a, um, a cask or something of the like. Or they are potentially willing to give a go. Is A good, low-cost quality wine in a box or a plastic bottle or whatever it wants to be. So there's a lot more room, a lot more opportunity, especially in the lower price tiers, to experiment with these alternative packages to find out what people are buying. So we're not really asking Australians to go, you know, completely get rid of a glass bottle. Um, we're not asking them to, yeah, buy granges in boxes. Or well, what we are asking them is to explore, well, if you're going to buy a bargain bin bottle of wine or something to cook with or just something for a casual get-together with friends, you know, you're not trying to impress, it's not a gift or anything, maybe give an alternative packaging a go um, rather than relying on something we know that's adding carbon emissions to the winemaking process.
7: You mentioned there um, that sort of shift, I guess. What do you think needs to be done to change these purchasing behaviours?
9: Well, part of it's time. So, you know, um, people are habitual, they buy what they know. Um, As these packages, you know, disperse further into the market, as people become more familiar with them, less, I guess, hesitant of them, they'll be more open or more receptive to trying them. Part of that is also the reputation of the wine itself has to change. So if we start seeing better wines packaged in these alternative formats, rather than, you know, the offshoots from wineries, canned or boxed. Uh, We might see more receptivity in terms of this, but this is a long process. We're not going to expect any drastic or sudden changes in people's behaviour. This is a change that will happen over many years. The other side of a coin is that, you know, while there is this consumer resistance, there's also a lot more work and research to be done in understanding how the industry views these packages. Why they're not exploring packaging more of their wines in these alternative formats and maybe ways that we could even encourage industry to make these packages more accessible, or more attractive to consumers for them to buy. So like when we're talking about examples of this, you know, years ago, all wine was packaged in corked bottles and then eventually we moved to like screw cap lids. Now, a lot of the discourse at the time was talking about how, you know, Australian consumers wouldn't want to drink out of a screw-top bottle, Um, you know, cork is premium, yada, yada. But what we actually found out is that Australian consumers didn't really care if, you know, they had to uncork a wine bottle, or if they just had to screw off the lid, as long as the wine inside was good. So what was the real barrier in that situation was the industry um, pick-up, so... It's, it's part of it's overcoming these consumer hesitations by encouraging them, making it more accessible, making it more familiar, making it more enticing. Um, and then the other side of the coin is figuring out, well, yeah, how can we make it uh, appealing for industry as well? What are the barriers for winemakers that are stopping them from putting more of their wines in all these alternative formats? But that's an area of research that, you know, still has to be explored.
2: Uni SA researcher Jacob Marcides speaking with Sophie Holder. Now we cross to the ABC newsroom for headlines with Michael Della Fontana.
10: Thank you, Lucy. United Airlines says bolts in need of additional tightening have been found during inspections of Boeing 737 MAX 9s. Inspections began after a section of the fuselage fell from an Alaska Airlines jet last week. More than 170 planes of the same type remain grounded by the US regulator. Aviation experts say the findings by United Airlines suggest that this is now a fleet problem. The Tasmanian Government says it's taking action to address ambulance ramping and bed block at public hospitals around the state. The Health and Community Services Union says for much of yesterday afternoon there were no ambulances available in the south to attend emergencies. Government Minister Felix Ellis said the Government is addressing the issue at a hospital level and investing in the state's ambulance service. The federal and state governments have announced a further $20 million in funding for Southeast Queensland residents impacted by recent severe storms. And in the NBL, new Jack Jumpers recruit Tom Vardanovich will be available to play for his new club in its clash with Brisbane in Brisbane tomorrow night. The 29-year-old was signed by the team following injuries to fellow big Will McNay and Majok Deng, who remains out for a number of weeks with a sprained ankle. More news at one o'clock.
2: Thank you, Michael. And on the Country Hour, it's 12.32. Time to check the weather forecast. Good afternoon, Michael Conway at the Bureau of Meteorology.
0: Good afternoon, Lucy.
2: Looking at the radar, it is fairly dry at the moment across most of the state. Is there actually any rain about?
0: No, it's uh, very settled. We've got a, a ridge over us at the moment. Uh, a weakish ridge, but it is it is there uh, suppressing any chance of rainfall today. There's a bit of cloud, scattered cloud around the west, about the west, but that's about it. Um, and uh, the, so lovely day today settled, looking at temperatures in the mid-20s. Tomorrow will warm up a little bit after uh, a little bit of uh, shower activity in the west as a little cold front comes through. But then we're back to the sunny conditions as the ridge reintroduces itself Thursday into Friday. Um, temperatures into the high 20s maybe even early, early 30s in inland areas uh saturday there could be a, a, another little cold front coming through bring showers about the west and then into the north in the afternoon but only light showers about
2: look it seems most of the east coast of australia has been getting some form, form of flooding rainfall event will any of that head our way over the next week or so
0: it 's not in the next week uh, after that week two is looking like it might be a little wetter than this week, but not not unusually so but uh, these things always come into focus a bit more as you get near us but this this week in, at the very least is very very settled weather temperature
2: rise any standouts across the state.
0: No they're um, all, all moderate temperatures so like for instance at the moment Hobart's at 19 degrees, 22 for Launceston, 20 for Devonport, 19 Winyard, uh, 21 King Island, drawn 21, 20 for Flinders Island and 19 for St Helens so very comfortable moderate sort of temperatures at the moment.
2: And warnings wise any out and about?
0: No warnings for today, but tomorrow we've got a strong wind warning for northeastern waters uh, from Stanley to Wineglass Bay, also for southern waters of Tasman Island to La Rocky Point.
2: Delightful, and I'll check with the wind as well. What's going on there?
0: Yes, out in the water we've got today south to southeasterly at 15 to 25 knots, um, northeast to northwesterly 10 to 20 knots. Um, developing throughout the state in the afternoon and uh, for tomorrow we've got northwesterlies at 10 to 20 knots and reaching up to 20 to 30 knots in the south. In the afternoon winds tend west to northwesterly 15 to 25 knots throughout and up to 30 knots at at times in the south and the northeast. The swell's about in the west and south today, we've got a southwesterly at around 2 metres Tomorrow southwesterly at one to two meters, uh, increasing again to in the afternoon two to three meters north easterly swell in the north tomorrow around one meter and then uh, sorry today about one meter tomorrow confused about 0.5 of a meter and in the east today there 's a southerly swell of one and a half to two and a half meters and tomorrow 's south easterly swell of about one to two meters and for both days there 's a, a, a northeasterly swell to one meter for uh, for the east.
2: Delightful. Michael Conway, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Lucy. Michael Conway at the Bureau of Meteorology.
1: Kylie Baxter. So
11: let's jump in. For
12: Lucy Braden. How is
11: it
0: being received
5: so far, Bob Clifford?
0: Well, it's a step in the right direction. Well, my proposal is that they would go to at least 15 jetties. The government are proposing about four or five.
5: Do you think it's also going to be a great benefit to Hobart as a community?
0: I think in 20 years time, it'll be very much like Sydney Harbour. You'll have manly style uh, distances to cover. Drive with Kylie Baxter.
12: For Lucy Braden,
1: Keeping you entertained and informed on ABC Radio Hobart. You're listening to The Country Hour with Lucy Cooper on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
2: Well, Victoria's stone fruit harvest has taken a battering during this week's heavy rain. About 30% of Australia's stone fruit is grown in the St- Swan Hill region in northern Victoria, where heavy rain over the weekend has left fruit damaged and orchards standing in water. Summer Fruits Australian chairman and Swan Hill Summer Fruits Association representative Dean Morpeth says between 20 and 40% of the fruit in that area was still on the tree and is now unlikely to reach premium markets.
13: Well, since Christmas Eve, um, so speaking locally from Swanwell Summerfruits, our region's been uh, very, very affected. It's been an amazing weather pattern with rain and storms like we haven't seen for quite some time or ever. And yeah, lots of farmers have been affected.
11: What does it mean for the fruit when that kind of uh, rain comes through?
13: There's been multiple. So there's been hail which has affected, you know, dropping it out of first class or or export quality into class two or waste. And um and now the weather, it just just puts too much pressure on the fruit and the nitrogen in the rain. And uh, we see a lot of fruit drop, affects the skin, just increases the the waste.
11: So what what can people expect if they're going to the supermarket looking for stone fruit at the moment?
13: (laughs) It's a great question. Let's be fair, I don't really don't know what the outcome's going to be. The worst of it's just been the last 24 hours. Hail you can deal with. You know, you, you grade it out. Yes, you lose income. Um, it makes it difficult in the packing shed. But the last 24 hours for our region, Warranine's been the, the, the tough one. Warranine, Lake Boga, Tresco, further north to Goodnight, Toolybuck. Yeah, it's been major downfalls. And we're not sure what that's going to mean for the rest of the season.
11: Could it be the end of the season for for that area?
13: I like to think I'm a fairly positive and realistic person and we have to let it settle and, and see something might be salvageable. Well, there's major flooding at the moment. There's, everyone's trees are probably underwater a bit and there's water running across roads and we just need to let it settle and water to dissipate a bit and then we can assess what that really means for our growers.
11: And what does it mean? So if a fruit's been downgraded from export quality to class two, what kind of effect does that have in terms of income for a grower?
13: You be dropping a dollar fifty a kilo, dollar a kilo more, plus the waste. It'll be significant, significant. And then the, the shame is there's nothing wrong with the fruit. It's just the it's the perception, and and I get it. We're we're a country that's spoiled for choice of some magnificent different fruit types that, but unfortunately people purchase with their eyes and they don't like to see that.
11: And what about the the waste? What happens to that?
13: Uh, in our industry currently, it's um mainly goes out to to different companies that have cattle or goats, sheep, etc. for feed. It's just uh, it's a zero income. It's waste. It's yeah.
11: Wurnine grower Peter Thornton says she had a good run with her stone fruit crops until Christmas. She managed to get about half of them harvested. But since Christmas, she's had a couple of large storms come over her property. She's had hail damage to some of her crops. And she now has orchards sitting in water after more than 100 millimetres of rain on Sunday and Monday.
14: Whilst we're lucky to have drainage um, under a lot of the Warrenine Irrigation District, it's only you know really set up to cope with a certain amount of rain. So in most instances, you know, downpours like we had yesterday, and, and consecutive over you know a number of wet weeks. Um, most of the drains don't, you know, have adequate capacity to manage that sort of water. So, yeah, we were certainly setting up pumps on one large patch of trees where water was sitting in a large area because. If the water sits, um, if the water trees sit in water for a longer period than a couple of days, it can certainly kill them. So, yeah, people were madly setting up pumps and, and trying to just remove the water off, um, off their orchards. So, um, you know, mm-hmm. other, other effects, uh, if you've got crops on, you'll often find that um, fruit will pop, pop off the trees. So you'll find a, a large amount of fruit dropped, And then um, it can send fruit spongy. It can also take some of the sweetness out of the fruit. So, yeah, it does have a a big impact. Stone fruit is certainly a bit of a a quite a challenging crop to grow and and weather has a huge impact. And in terms of
11: for a consumer, if they're going to the supermarket, what do you think they should be expecting if they're looking for stone fruit? Is it just going to be a bit less fruit available potentially over the next couple of weeks?
14: We're going to still have a lot of beautiful fruit to to, um, send to the market. I'd imagine that there, there will be a, an impact. Um, there might not be quite as much fruit, um, but I think that there's still going to be a pretty steady supply. We've got a lot of stone fruit here, um, certainly being produced in Victoria, and I, I think that there's still going to be plenty of stone fruit on the shelves.
2: Our thoughts with all growers affected by floods right now. That was Victorian grower Peter Thornton ending that report from Elsie Kennedy.
1: The Country Hour with Lucy Cooper on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
2: Discovering a new idea or improvement on your farm can be explored further by approaching industry bodies such as Meat and Livestock Australia to consider funding a project. MLA runs trials on farms and in Tasmania they're supporting a trial to see the benefits of increasing legumes such as clover and lucerne in pastures. Alan Peake is the feed-based program manager at MLA and he explains to Claire Burberry what's going on in pasture-based trials across Australia.
15: Any pastures or soil research that MLA funds anywhere in Australia... Myself and my team, we oversee that research and make sure it's being done well. Yeah, we do a bit of travel in our, our job to sort of come around and see what the project leaders are doing and turn up to field days and talk to producers, uh, make sure that, that the, the work that's being done is of interest to producers, and today's been a really good day.
16: Why are legumes so important in meat production?
15: Oh, look, legumes are a really real focus for our feed-based research in MLA at the moment. Um, you know, legumes give produces free nitrogen from the air obviously so that's really important with the price of nitrogen fertiliser sometimes gets up really high uh, bringing free nitrogen into the system and and they just really boost productivity when they're used well Uh, animals will grow so much faster on a good feed base with a legume in it and that's really important for producers as well so all around the country we're looking to try and boost the use of legumes in red meat production systems
16: what are some other projects that are running around australia
15: Oh, crikey. Uh, there's a bunch of, bunch of different things going on. We've got a big initiative. So I'm, I'll, I'll talk to you about pasture stuff, obviously. So up in Queensland, we've got a big um, uh, pastures initiative happening where you know the lucena plant is really well suited to Queensland. It's a very uh, valuable sort of tree shrub legume in Queensland, but there's not enough producers using it. It's quite difficult to get it sown.
16: Is it a native
15: uh, so no, it's, it's an introduced species, it's been in Australia for, goodness knows uh, 30, 40 years people have been mucking around with it. Um, but anyway, so that project, uh, a big part of that is about um, trying to get uh, lucina and other legumes like stylos, tropical legumes, uh, used by uh, producers in northern Australia, so that's, that's one. So we also do um, anything anything that attacks the pastures, anything that attacks the feed base, is also part of our portfolio, so we have research projects running at the moment to improve Biological control of rabbits, for instance, uh, to improve the biological control of blackberry, which is a, a pretty uh, horrible weed in southern Australia, uh, and some other weeds in northern Australia. So there's there's some more projects happening at the moment.
16: How do these projects come across your desk in the first place?
15: That's a really good question. It's it's quite a mixture. Um, so sometimes when there's when there's levy dollars available from um, producer sales of animals, uh, we'll put out a. Uh, we have a producer consultation process. We talk a lot uh, to producers all over the country to understand what's the biggest research priority for those producers. And so we we work with the producers in each part of the country to come up with their their priorities, and then we'll fund a project specifically around that. Um, so in northern Australia, we're trying to fund a project at the moment around uh, land condition monitoring. So it's about making sure that the rangelands in northern Australia uh, are being maintained in good health through satellite monitoring. That's an example. Uh, and in southern Australia, again, one of our big focuses is is um, legume productivity gaps. We're trying to understand where in southern Australia are legumes underperforming and why, you know, do they need better nutrition, do they need better rhizobium bugs to make them fix nitrogen.
16: Do MLA member levies fund the projects?
15: So that's that's only part of the projects. We're Actually probably uh, the bigger, the majority of projects that we get in Feedbase are actually funded through what we call the Meat Donor Company, and that's uh, federal government money that's matched uh, by someone else, um, whether it's a state government department or a private sector. And so we also got a number of projects uh, in that, um, that style. And for those projects, they can come forward at any time. If someone's got a really good idea that can help red meat producers, we'll, we'll work up a project with them. And if it's got a good value proposition, technical term, uh, to show us that it's going to make a difference for red meat producers, then we'll, we can fund that project. So uh, they can come, come, come across our desk at any time. So I've got a couple coming forward at the moment where people have got really good ideas and we want to try and help red meat producers with them.
16: Is MLA affected by lower livestock prices?
15: Uh, that, well, the levies the levies are actually on a per animal basis, so that the whether the price is high or not, it's really just the number of animals being sold that uh, determine the number of levies that come in. Yep. Yeah. So something uh, really important to MLA. Actually, um, we for our bigger projects, particularly we. Off- often do a a benefit-cost analysis. Uh, It's quite complex around, uh, you know, exactly what difference is this project going to make to producers. So one of the things we'll do is actually do surveys of producers and help understand, you know, the people that were coming to field days or or participating in experiments. Um, Did they change anything because of what they learned through the project and how much extra money did they make because of that change? And then we add all that up across the project and see... You know, how much did the project do for producers in its lifetime? And then we make a projection as to what's that expected to do over the next 10 years as well.
2: Alan Peake from Meat and Livestock Australia speaking there to Claire Burberry. It's 13 minutes to one. Let's
15: go! Back
1: in 2024. We packed it properly. Rick Goddard for breakfast. I'm
2: really excited coming
1: back. Breakfast with Rick. Get amongst it. Rick Goddard. Five days from 5.30. Our tricky question of the week. Let's
12: go. It showcases the real artistic talents.
1: Rick Goddard, back for five in 2024.
10: The most extravagant breakfast I ever had. Now you're talking.
1: Rick Goddard, back from January the 22nd on ABC Radio Hobart. On ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania, this is The Country Hour with Lucy Cooper.
2: One of the world's most prestigious thoroughbred sales will kill, kick off on the Gold Coast today. The annual Magic Millions Gold Coast Yearling Sale has drawn a catalogue of almost 1,500 horses to be auctioned over the next week. Last year, the record, record books were rewritten three times within just 48 hours. The current sale record is $2.7 million, made by a cult by I Am Invincible barry bowditch is magic millions managing director he said this year's sale is the biggest in its history
4: there's a great vibe around the gold coast i think uh you know we got underway with inspections here about a week ago now and uh you know you know all our sellers and buyers have converged on the gold coast and we had a fantastic race day over the road at the gold coast turf club on saturday where we had magic millions had four races worth over a million dollars all up and uh and then we had an amazing night up at, uh, you know, on Saturday night where we um, obviously championed some of the great women of our, our industry and and had our inaugural um, Magic Means Tap Awards night.
17: Do you have any of those awards at hand we could run through?
4: Yeah, absolutely. We had the uh, inaugural Hall of Fame award, which was um, a tied vote this year um, between um, no other than Gay Waterhouse and uh, and one of our leading syndicators in uh, Star Thoroughbreds, is Denise Martin. And the, uh, and the 2024 Women of the Year went to Lindy Maurice, who's from uh, Thoroughbred Careers and manages all the pony racing that we're seeing at the moment, all those sort of things. So two very worthy, or three very worthy winners.
17: It's an exciting time up there. Uh, but from Tuesday, of course, everything will turn to um, this big catalogue. It just seems to grow every year, Barry. Um, take me through what the next week will look like.
4: So we've got a big, big catalogue of horses over the two books of uh, We've got 1,468 lots. Uh, we kick off at 10am, uh, 11am, sorry, after the big Met Barrier draw down at the beach. So 11am we'll kick off with uh, the 210 lots tomorrow. And book one will go from tomorrow through to after our big, the Star uh, Magic Begins race day with 142.5 million on Saturday. So, um, you know, huge week selling and uh, you know, there's a lot of anticipation around, and uh, you know, there's plenty of people there doing their work and, and looking at these magnificent yearlings we've got to offer.
17: Tell me a bit about the um, the excitement, the anticipation from, of course, the the local, the Australian racing industry, but of course, this Magic Millions always attracts that global interest.
4: It does. You know, we've got buyers from um, all over the world, whether it be America, um, you know, Europe, the UK, all over Asia, Japan, China, Hong Kong, um. New Zealand, uh, a little bit of interest from the Middle East and obviously a huge domestic market. So I think, you know, it's it's an event, it's a festival. I think, uh, you know, whether you're a, a horse seller, a horse buyer or just a horse enthusiast, I think, uh, you know, it, it's on everyone's calendar these days to come into the Gold Coast and obviously enjoy Queensland and, and enjoy, you know, all, all the events that, that, that Magic Means has to offer.
17: Now, out of these nearly fifteen hundred lots, Barry, who do you have your eye on? Where do you think there might be a bit of value to be found, or um, some records potentially to fall?
4: Uh, it's a good question. Obviously, I think uh, I think you know it's a it's a very even group of horses. We've got some you know outstanding horses in the south. I think you know lots to look out for. You know that could you know obviously make headlines. Uh, um, you know, I'm invincibles always a saying that he always has horses up the top of the top of the tree. And I think they've got there's lot nineteen a cold out of Palace Talk, and there's lot three fifty a uh, a cult out of uh, warranty from Sedge and Hosted. Uh, they're two to kick off with, but I think all in all there'll be, there'll be many highlight lots, but obviously I think we've got a, when we get a big catalogue of over 1,400 horses, I think there's going to be a lot of value to be found at all angles. So whether you've got a small budget, a big budget, or you're looking to just take a share in a horse, I think it's a, it's a great time to get involved in our industry. And uh, and I think we've got the catalogue that'll that'll serve serve the buyers very, very well.
2: Magic Millions Managing Director Barry Bowditch speaking there with Amelia Bernasconi.
1: You're listening to The Country Hour with Lucy Cooper on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
2: Gemma Hogg was on the cusp of her dream career as a jockey when she was struck down by Golden Staff infection. Now, after years as a truckie, the 31-year-old is taking one last chance at a spot in the winner's circle. This story is by Megan Hughes with additional podcast production by Ross Kay.
10: Jockeying for position
9: on the racetrack at Emerald, Queensland.
8: I got the golden staff and I got really sick. It was a very emotional time of my life and I thought I'd, I'd lost me, my dream and I felt like I lost all that hard work
12: in 2017, jockey Gemma Hogg was forced to walk away from the racetrack with no plans to return. She'd fallen ill on the cusp of her dream career becoming a professional jockey.
8: I got golden staff in my right arm the first time I tried my apprenticeship and um, I was really sick for a long time and I and I, I threw the towel and I gave I, I gave up that career. Gemma's childhood was spent around horses,
12: A pony club and competing in horse sports where her goal to race was formed.
8: I always sort of thought about going into thoroughbred racing and um, one day I just happened to meet meet the right people that sort of got my foot in the door and I went, went to Rocky and learned how to ride work and like, it was tough. It um, gives you a lot of pride once you get there sort of thing because of the work that goes into it so. With her jockey dream
12: in tatters Gemma decided to put another skill she had to good use. A skill she first picked up while working on really remote cattle stations in the Northern Territory before even pursuing her jockey dream.
8: I thought god that's a long way to drive for work that's a lot of fuel so I started getting rides in like lifts out there in a in one of my mate's road trains and yeah and then one day he sort of said oh would you you know, would you like to learn and because obviously you have quite a lot of time to, to talk from Brisbane to Darwin, yeah he learnt that I was artistic and we sort of struck a deal where I painted his truck in return for him to teach me to drive and I drove a little bit like a little bit for him with the L plates on with a road train and, and then after that I sort of just, uh, I think I drove my uncle's heavy rigid cattle truck for a while and then yeah, and then never really got in a heavy vehicle after that for a long time until I moved to Emerald about two and a half years ago now. Went straight into the um, the bus driving job, which kind of loved as well. <laughs> driving a truck is, that's, that's where I get my mojo from when I'm sitting behind the truck. Yeah. Uh, Behind the steering wheel of a truck, I feel like I'm in a position of a position of power really. Like it's um, there's such big machines and it's such a big responsibility. There's so much money involved in everything and it's like it just makes you so proud to be able to do that.
12: But in between buses, tilt trays and prime movers, the lure of the race course never went away. And four years after walking off the track, the call came literally to get back in the saddle.
8: Glenda Bell, she used to see me ride, well she's a trainer and she used to train at Rocky when I was apprenticeship, like started my apprenticeship there. And when she found out I was in town, she, she just wouldn't take no for an answer, she yeah, pushed me to pick it up again. Can you describe what it was like
12: your first race since starting back? How did you feel in the
8: moments before getting back on the horse? Oh, first race. Um, so my first race wasn't anything like I thought it'd be. Just because I've had had a lot of hurdles and struggles this year. Like I, it's been it's been a real tough year. I've um, been on and off with injuries and broken ribs and broken fingers. And I lost a friend um, maybe a, m- a month or two before my first race and. I think leading up to my first race, I was just a bit numb. You know, I thought I'd be more excited or more nervous, but I'm pretty sure I just I just went out there and I just allowed my body just to do what what it knows to do. Like I ride that many horses, work, and I, it just sort of come naturally to me. I would probably I'll never forget my first race ride. I don't think anyone ever does. At that same race meeting, I got my first my first win and. Um, that was an emotional moment. So that track, that track, even though, even though Twin Hills is um, is known to be a bit of a rough track in professional thoroughbred racing, um, that's where I that's where I had my first win and my first shot at it. So, under the circumstances, it's special that place. Yeah! Jockeying is a tough gig. It's hard on the body and Gemma has decided this is her last shot and I'm getting on a little bit now so I want to um I want to eventually settle down and have kids so I want to get this this whole jockeying thing a little bit out of my system before that happens because obviously you um you can't ride while you're pregnant and I don't think I'd really want to risk getting hurt if I had a, a child to look after. You know, I thought I'd never be able to finish. I'm just so happy that I'm, that I'm living that dream.
2: Emerald-based truck driver, jockey Gemma Hogg. Ending that story from Megan Hughes. And to see more about Gemma's journey ahead, head online to the ABC Rural website. Ready to hit the
8: road less travelled? Backroads is back out adventuring. From Tassie's Tasman Peninsula to East Arnhem Land in the Territory and everywhere in between. Join me, Heather Hewitt, and my guest explorers now on Tuesday nights at 8, visiting the small towns and communities that make Australia so special.
1: All new Backroads returns tonight on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView.
2: And just looking at stories making news around the rest of the country, as grocery prices rise and major supermarkets make billion-dollar profits just last year, one of Australia's most generous farmers has lost $9 million. He's now considering whether rock-bottom 1978 prices will force him to leave the industry he loves. You can head to abc.net.au forward slash rural for more on that story. And that is the Country Hour for this Tuesday, the 9th of January. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll be here tomorrow, so be sure to tune in at midday for more rural stories. Don't forget the Tasmanian Country Hour website for daily details of what's happening in the Country Hour if you're on the net. Search for Tasmanian Country Hour and you'll get today's program and past programs as well. You can even listen back to interviews by clicking on the audio link or we'll find articles and photographs from all of our rural reporters, not just in Tasmania, but from right around the country. It's news time. It's one o'clock.
15: The ABC Listen app gives you ABC Radio Hobart the way you want it. So when the footy's on, you can cheer your team on. But if you want a different option, just choose one of your favourite programs instead. Download the free ABC Listen app today.